You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Joshua is a book that's all about moving onward. And uh, what we're learning is that the direction of the Christian life is always onward. It's appropriate today that we're talking about remembering things. We're remembering our seventh birthday. We're remembering the the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross over 2,000 years ago. We're going to continue that theme as we remember things in the past. Um, have you noticed, how many of you have a Facebook account? Be honest, Facebookers out there. Have you noticed this new feature that Facebook has where they're now like posting for you memories of your past? And uh, some of those are like less than flattering moments in your life. It's like, that was a part of my life I would rather forget, and yet it's almost like they're shaming you by bringing it back up. Is anybody, am I the only one that's experienced that? Uh, someone recently posted a picture of me when I was 14 years old. Uh, not my finest moment or my best look at that point. So uh, it was a little shameful for me to see that. Well, the, we all have things in our past that we're ashamed of, and we like to forget them, but the reality is this. Some of the things in our past that are shameful are actually keeping us from moving onward. And that is the lesson that we're going to learn today. There is a very vivid picture in Joshua chapter 2 of someone who needed to move onward from the shame in her past. And let me give you the big idea of the message here today. Do you like it when I put it all in one sentence? Here it is. I will only move onward from the shame of my past when I am tied to the rope of God's rescue. I will only move onward from the shame of my past when I am tied to the rope of God's rescue. And we're going to be introduced to this young lady, and she's going to teach us three lessons this morning about how to move onward. Here's the first thing that she's going to teach us. She's going to teach us how to move onward from the shame in our past. And so let's dive into it, beginning in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly to Shittim as spies. You have to say it like that, okay? I mean, inside the heart of every man in this room is a secret desire to be a spy. If you ask the men when they were seven years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? Race car driver, football player, spy was somewhere in the top five, okay? I mean, to be involved in international espionage and to be all stealthy and sleuthy, and that, that's a great occupation, you know what you think? Inside the heart of me, there is a little spy, and it comes bubbling out every now and then as I hide in dark corners and jump out and scare my children. Am I the only one that does this? Uh, no, they're inside the heart of every man in this room. There is, there is a little spy. So it says that these two spies secretly were sent from Shittim as spies, saying, Joshua said, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. Now, as I began to think about this, I'm like, well, why was he sending the spies in there? God had already promised that they would win every victory. So he wasn't sending the spies in there to evaluate how big's the enemy. That had already been done. Joshua was a spy earlier in his life, with, along with his friend named Caleb. They'd already done this. So why was he sending these two spies in there? I don't really know. I just kind of, as I was thinking about it, I'm thinking they wanted to make sure 
that there was enough distance between Jericho and themselves when the walls fell down. Okay, if the walls are 100 feet tall, we're going to have to stand back about 100 feet or we're going to get crushed in the process. There, there was an absolute certainty of victory. They just didn't want to make sure, they wanted to make sure they didn't get crushed in the process. That's what I'm thinking. And um, so they're going in there, they're looking at the land, and they encounter someone. It says here at the end of verse 1, They went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Verse 2, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So apparently they weren't very good spies. Because they, I mean, they got caught as soon as, I mean, they're just, people are chasing them down. They knew they were there. And so, where do you go when you're looking for a place to hide? You go to a person who's good at hiding men. So here are these two spies, they walk up to the house of this prostitute, Jericho, and knock on the door, and you can imagine as Rahab opens the door, she sees two men. This was not an uncommon sight for her, because men were always knocking on her door. But these two men were arriving for a completely different purpose than the men that normally arrived at her location. In verse 3, it says, Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, so, uh, for they have come to search out our land. Verse 4, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, <laughs> Next word is great. True. Let's underline that word. Because the next sentence is true, but nothing else she ever says is true. It says, true, the men came to me. True or false? True or false? True. And I did not know where they came from. True or false? True. Verse 5. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. True or false? False. I do not know where the men went. True or false? False. Pursue them quickly and you will overtake them. True or false? False. <laughs> she is a great liar. Do you know why she's a great liar? She'd had a lot of practice. The more shame there is in your past, the better liar you become. She was a prostitute. She was a professional hider of men who wanted to remain anonymous. This was not the first time she'd hidden men. And this was not the first time she had lied. She was a good liar because there was a mountain of shame in her past. Verse 6 tells us how she did it. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. Verse 7, So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, that's not a car dealership. A ford is a shallow place in the river where you can cross over by foot. So they're out there looking, them, looking for them in the Jordan River. They're nowhere near there. They're on top of the roof of the prostitute's house. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Interesting, isn't it? The contrast between the prostitutes and the spies. How does a woman become 
a prostitute. If you had asked Rahab as a seven-year-old girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? Being a prostitute was probably the farthest thing from her mind. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to fall in love. Rahab had never fallen in love. She had been used, but she had never been loved. She had had sex, but she'd never had love. So how does a seven-year-old little girl with pigtails and ribbons in her hair, how does she become a prostitute? You have to understand something about the culture in Canaan. Canaan was a land that was godless. Rahab didn't have a church to go to. She didn't have a Bible. She'd never had a preacher tell her about the glories and the redemption of God. She had become a product of the sexual appetites of godless men. As a matter of fact, she probably had been enslaved in human trafficking. She was someone that some man was using for money and sex. The two gods that are very prevalent in our day, even here in America, and that's why we still have prostitution. As a matter of fact, estimates are there's at least 12.3 million people enslaved in human trafficking for sexual purposes around the world, and that's just, that's just the numbers that we have some indication of evidence from. She was a commodity. She was someone who had been greatly sinned against. The average age of a prostitute on her first trick that we know about is age 13. It's quite likely she was not much older than that. We're going to find out later that we know that her parents were still alive, and so she was probably a young lady. And she was scarred by the sins that had been committed against her. And when you have been sinned against repeatedly over and over and over, do you know what happens? It begins to define your identity. God has an identity for all of us. We're made in the image of God. We're stamped with His fingerprints. He loves us. He has purpose and plan for our lives. But when you have been sinned against so often, it begins to redefine who you think you were created to be. Maybe she began to think, you know what? Because I've been treated like trash, I must be trash. Because I am only being used for sex, I must only be useful for sex. And it began to shape her identity and the mountain of shame in her heart from her past had begun to overwhelm her. And wherever shame exists, sin remains. In our world, there's, there's a couple of ways you can get rid of shame. We all have it. If you go to the world, apart from God, apart from the Bible, apart from Jesus Christ, they'll tell you that shame is the result of a false understanding of sin. If you want to remove the shame, all you have to do is to redefine sin. You have to get rid of the construct of morality and sin and right and wrong in order to be set free from shame. That's the world's way of dealing with shame. 
can I tell you the Bible's way of dealing with shame? God doesn't want you to redefine sin. He wants you to repent of sin. You have to own it. You have to take personal responsibility. You stop blaming and excusing and justifying your sin because of the way that those people treated you, because you have been sinned against. Here's what happens. The more often you've been sinned against, the more prone you are to sin. The things, the shameful things that have been done to you begin to become acceptable to you, and you begin to embrace those things for yourself. And so Rahab, Rahab, even though she was a victim, she was not an innocent victim. Sins committed against you make you more prone for sins to be committed by you. And you are so much less willing to identify sin committed by you than you are sin committed against you. No matter where you are today, no matter how horribly you've been treated, no matter how much you've been sinned against, maybe even that's going on right now in some dark corner of your life and nobody else knows about it. Please understand, your past sins and the sins that have been committed against you, they may explain your sin, but they do not excuse your sin. You've got to take personal responsibility. If you want to move onward, you have to identify sin in order to remove the shame. Rahab needed to be rescued. All in favor of a new future for Rahab? All in favor of moving onward past prostitution? Do, do you have a little sympathy in your heart now for Rahab? You know, it's so often, we're, we're so self-righteous, we read the story of Rahab and you just think, oh, how could she be so evil? And yet, if we understand how she's been sinned against, it makes us a lot more sympathetic toward how she is committing sin. It reminded me, as I studied this this week, of my favorite Valentine's Day movie. Of course, you all know the movie I'm talking about. Forrest Gump, right? You know Forrest Gump? Remember his girlfriend? What was her name? Say it together. Yeah, and if you didn't use it, if you said it like Jenny, you didn't get to see the movie. Jenny, right, everybody? Let's all say it together. Jenny. So Jenny is Forrest's girlfriend. You remember this? And, and uh, she's a wild child, right? I mean, she is sinning left and right, and you're thinking, you know, what happened to her that made her so out of control until finally about halfway in the movie we learned the backstory on Jenny. They were taking a walk, and they came up to a house. And we realize that was the house, that was the place where Jenny had been raised and she had been so often sinned against, that was the place of her shame. And we don't, we're never told really what all happened there, but it was certainly a place that she hated. So much so that in this scene she begins to throw rocks at the house and she bursts into tears and falls to the ground Forrest is wondering what in the world is going on. But she was certainly carrying a mountain of shame. And if she was going to move onward, she was going to need to deal with the shame. We said earlier that in the 
heart of every man, there's a little spy that wants to bubble out. Do you know what the reality is? Why do you think God preserved this story for us this morning? It wasn't just a documentary on Rahab. The reality is this. In the heart of every person here, there's not only a spy, there's a prostitute. It's filled with shame, regret, sins that have been committed against you, and sins that have been committed by you. And you'll never be set free from the shame as long as you are hiding and lying and covering and content to remain in your sin. God wants you to move onward. How do you move onward? Here's the second thing. You move onward by faith in my present. You move onward by faith right here, right now. Look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, remember they're up on the roof. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, verse 9, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now, look at your Bible. Do you see where it refers to the Lord? See anything special about the word Lord? See the four letters, L-O-R-D? See those? Um, You notice they're in capital letters? That is your English Bible translator's way of letting you know that is the proper name of God that God self-disclosed to Moses back in Exodus chapter 2. It's the name Yahweh. It's His proper name. When Moses asked, who should I tell them is sending me? God gave His proper name. Tell them the I Am sent you. And it's translated in the way that we know that, that that name is his proper name in our English translations. It's capitalized there. Here's what's significant about that. How did a pagan Canaanite prostitute know the name of God? She didn't just say the God or the man upstairs. She used his name. Somehow she had been given knowledge of God's name. How do you think she got it? I'll give you a secret here in just a minute. I think I know how. Verse 9, And she said to the men, I know the Lord has given you the land. Here's what else she knew. And the fear of you has fallen on us. There's only three ways to respond to the knowledge of God. The first one is fear. To run from Him. The second one is fight against him. And they were getting ready to do battle with God. Some of those men were strapping on armor, and they're going to fight against the will of God. They're going to lose every time. A little side note here. You're never going to win that fight. You might as well just surrender. And that's the third option. Not just fear, not just fight, but to give him your faith and believe who he is. And so... She's like, you know what? If you can't beat them, join them. Um, I think I'd like to be a part of that team. And so that's exactly what happens. The fear of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Somehow, the conversation among the Canaanites was what God had done in rescuing Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Do you think that got 
Rahab's attention? There is a God who rescues people who are in slavery? I am in slavery. I am interested in getting to know this God because I would like to move onward out of my slavery to a better place. And so when she heard, by the way, who do you think told her? I think it was her clients. I think those men that passed through had been talking among themselves that there is an army gathered on the other side and they have a God that is bigger than our gods with little g's and he is on the move and he is someone who delivered them out of Egypt. Maybe she even knew more detail than we're given here. Maybe she had heard how God delivered them out of Egypt that there were these ten plagues that this God sent to Pharaoh, the king there in Egypt, to get his attention so that he would let these people go. Maybe she had heard about this last plague, about how this God was going to kill all the firstborn there in Egypt if they didn't let them go. And in order to protect these slaves, he told them, I want you to take an innocent lamb, and I want you to spill its blood. And I want you to take that blood and I want you to put it on the doorpost of your homes because the color of this rescue is going to be red. And maybe she'd heard about the blood and the lamb and the rescue and the Passover. And here these people were gathered on the banks of the Jordan River. It goes on in the middle of verse 10. She'd also heard about how God had defeated the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, the two kings there. Their names were Sion and Og, great names for kings, who you devoted to destruction. God was undefeated. Those guys lost, and so they didn't really have a whole lot of hope. Verse 11, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Now, you can't go past that. Some of you have frozen hearts this morning and you are hearing the story of rescue and redemption and faith and as soon as you hear it if your heart is not melting it's the wrong response you should be melting as the story that has been told for thousands of years comes to your ears. And the story that melted her heart eventually ignited her heart with a flame and a passion to worship and to follow and to obey this God. It says it here at the end of verse 11. Our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, He is God. What was she saying? Your God is now my God. It's not just going to be something that God does for you. I want Him to do that for me. He is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That was her profession of faith. She was putting her hope and her trust for a rescue in the God who is the only God. Verse 12, Now then, Please swear to me, she's speaking to the spies, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me and my father's house. And, notice she doesn't stop. 
she doesn't just ask for a promise. She asks for a sign. And give me a sure sign. Why didn't it just stop and say, swear to me? Swear to me that you'll get me out of here. Swear to me that you'll come back and get me. Swear it to me. Promise. She said, I want a sign. Why do you think she asked for a sign? How many promises do you think she had heard from men? How many clients had told her, baby, I love you, and I'm coming back for you. I'm going to get you out of this mess. You think she had much trust in men? No, because she'd been lied to and sinned against so much by men, she had very little trust of men, not knowing how much integrity these men had, not knowing they were men of God. She said, I don't want to promise, I want a sign. And they're going to give her a sign. You're going to find out what that is here in just a minute. Let's continue reading verse 13. That you will save alive my father and my mother and my brother and my sister and all who belong to them, my nieces and my nephews and my cousins. You know how the family tree works. And deliver our lives from death. She knew that the invasion was coming. She knew that God was going to wipe out this country, but she wanted out alive. And so she asked them for a promise. She asked them for a sign. The men respond in verse 14. And the men said to her, our life for yours even unto death. She'd never heard that before. She'd never had men that were willing to lay down their lives to rescue a woman. Do you know what that phrase is? Our life for yours, even unto death. That's the echo of the gospel in the sixth book of the Bible. How many of you are husbands? Raise your hands. Husbands, it's Valentine's Day. Can I give you one verse? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says this. Husbands, love your wives. Most of us check out at that point. It's like, I'm just not into my feelings. I'm just not warm and fuzzy. I just really have trouble with, you know, all this warm and fuzzy stuff. That verse is not telling you to feel something. That verse is telling you to do something. Husbands, love your wives. How do I do that? As Christ loved the church. How did he do that? And gave himself for her. He was saying, I would rather die than to see you perish. Your life in front of mine. And that's what these spies were saying. We will give our lives to express to you how much we love you for what you've done for us. And so she'd never heard that before. She'd had sex, but she'd never had love. She'd been used, but she'd never been loved. And for the first time, she sees what real love looks like from real men who are spies. And she says, they say back to her, if you do not tell 
this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you, verse 15. And she let them down by a rope through a window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. Now, you've got to imagine this here. Big wall, small house, she lived in a wall, okay? And the wall apparently was a couple of stories up because... She was going to let them out a window, down a rope, to get out alive. Now, why did these spies need to go out the window, down the rope? Very simple. They would have been caught. They would have been killed if they had tried to go down the stairwell the way that they came in. They would have gotten stopped at the gate. They never would have made it out alive if they hadn't gone out the window and down the rope. She fortunately had a rope for them. And this rope became a rope of rescue for these spies. They were not getting out without the rope. It continues in verse 16. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. Verse 17, The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you, may, that you have swear, sworn to us. Verse 18, Behold, when we come into the land. Do you remember that sign she was asking for? They said, We'll give you a sign. Here's the sign. When we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood... Why are they bringing up blood? It's a phrase of knowing who's responsible he said, His blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in this house, his blood shall be on your head. It's a way of talking about who's responsible, who's going to be held accountable for our actions. His blood will be on your head, or his blood will be on our head. In verse 19, it says, I already read that, right? Verse 20. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to the oath that you have sworn us. And she said, according to your words, so, we, so be it. Then she sent them away and departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. We find out another detail about this rope. What color was the rope? Play along with me here. What color was the rope? Scarlet. Or if you went to public school, red is fine. It's an acceptable answer if you can't spell scarlet. Now, what is the significance of red? Remember, she has asked them for a sign. I don't trust you. I want to see something from you. And they said, okay, you're going to put the rope out your window, the scarlet rope. Why? Was this color so important to the story? I believe this sign represented three things that the spies wanted her to see. First of all, that, that sign was the sign of her sin. 
How do we know that scarlet is the color of sin, that signifies sin in some way? It's because of this verse, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Though your sins be like, what color? Scarlet. If I was writing the Bible, that's not an announcement, by the way, but if I was writing the Bible, I would have put black. How many of you would have gone with black there? Though your sins be like uh, black, like a stain, like, you know, really dark mud and dirt, you know. He doesn't use the color black. He uses the color red. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Nobody in Florida or Arizona understands this verse. We understand this verse, okay? We know what snow looks like, right? Anybody need a picture of... You don't need that. I don't need to put a picture of snow. I don't need to do that, right? But what's the significance of red? How many of you as parents have... Uh, um, given your children uh, juice or Kool-Aid in a cup. And yet, because your children, like my children, have no dexterity, it doesn't stay in the cup. It ends up on their clothes or on the carpet. Am I, is it just my children or has anybody else experienced this, right? How easy is that to get out? Is that hard to get out? It's almost impossible to get out a red, scarlet, juice stain on carpet or on a white shirt. And that's what he's trying to communicate to us. It is almost impossible to get the shame of sin out of our lives. But he says, though they are red like crimson, three different colors of shades of red, scarlet, red, crimson. Do you need to understand what we're talking about here? They, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool, white wool. What animal produces wool? A lamb. What was the sign? These spies were trying to get her to see that the sign she was asking for was a sign of sacrifice. A sign of sacrifice. Remember these Do you remember what these spies had gone through 40 years earlier? They were the slaves in Egypt. And the only way they got out of Egypt alive was by red, red blood from a spotless lamb being smeared all over the doorpost as a way of escaping the judgment that was coming from the death angel. And God passed over them because the death angel saw the color red. And these spies said, yeah, that's a red rope. That's perfect. Because red is the color of rescue. This is what you need to do, Rahab. Hang that red rope outside the window. Interestingly, we went through the doorpost and then we went out this window. And so now you hanging the color red outside the window is going to be our way of knowing we're going to pass over you and you're going to be rescued. You're going to be saved. Because they understood that rescue is always accomplished through the color of blood. We don't know how the rope got red. Maybe it was dyed. Maybe it was dipped in blood. And that's what made it red. These spies, they understood the significance of blood. Do you understand the significance of blood to redemption? 
Those of you that are carrying guilt and shame for sin, even though you made a commitment to Christ years ago, maybe continue, you continue to be plagued by things that happened last week or last month or 50 years ago for that matter. Do you know what you need to be reminded? You need to be reminded about what the Bible says about the power of the color of blood. Notice this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He points back to Egypt and says, For Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ once and for all paid for all the sin of all the people who had ever repented and believed. And if you are in Christ, He is your Passover lamb. He has provided your rescue through His blood because He was sacrificed. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. The blood of Christ will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Ephesians 1, 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of His grace. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Revelation 1, 5, Jesus Christ who loves us and has freed us because we once were slaves. He's freed us from our sins by His blood. The color of rescue is the color of blood. And these spies knew there is no way we're getting out of this alive without the color of blood. What's so significant about this color of blood? I want you to see it here. Notice in verse 21. She did something so significant. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord to the window. I need a little help up here. Sam and Olivia, I need you. And um, uh, Colin, I'll take you. So, yeah, come on up here. Need some volunteers, some victims, volunteers. Uh, you are in the sermon, okay? So I got some things up here for you. Um, I got two signs up here. Let's see. Um, um, Olivia, come right over here. Um, you get the uh, bad draw today. You will represent sin and shame. Uh, just stand right there if you would. And um, Sam, you get to represent the blood and the cross, okay? Now, you're useless at this point. Just hold on. All right, now, <laughs> this is what I want you to understand. In the story... We find the story of us. And let me just say as a precursor here, I'm not sure where the explanation and the I don't, I'm not sure where the explanation stops and the illustration begins, but it is not insignificant that this rope is the color of blood. When you are born into this world, you are tied to sin and shame. You have no choice about it. Um, you're just tied. You're, you're a slave. You're as much a slave to sin as Rahab was to her occupation. You're you're tied up. You're bound to sin and shame. Some of you today are still bound to sin and shame. And you need a rescue. And what God is trying to say to you through this story is, you need to tie your rope to something else. Now these spies that were there, they had somehow gotten caught up in the place of Rahab's sin and shame. Remember, they're having this conversation in her house, on the roof, 
there had probably been some sinful things that had gone on on that roof. And there they were. They weren't in sin, but they were in the place of her sin and her shame. And in some sense, they were tied to it. And as a matter of fact, if they didn't get out of there, they were going to die along with her. Please hear me. The only way that the spies were going to get out of this alive, if they could trust the rope and repel out of the place of sin and shame to the place of rescue. And in their minds, that had something to do with the color of blood. Do you understand that our identity will be determined by which end of the rope we're tied to? If you are still tied to the sin and the shame of your past... You don't have victory. You don't have freedom. You're enslaved. You're thinking wrong thoughts. You've been so sinned against and you've committed so much sin. You think that's, that's your identity. What God is trying to tell you today is He wants to change your identity. The rope of redemption unties you from the shame of your past and ties you to the blood in the cross of Christ. And the blood and the cross of Christ pull you out of your past identity and give you a new identity in Christ. Come here, Colin. Who? Evan. This is Evan. <laughs> Can I call you Colin? This is Evan. So Evan, Evan represents each of you, okay? And let me just say, I'm looking at you. This is an upgrade for most of you, okay? So this is Evan, and uh, he represents you. And up until you become a Christian, you, like Evan, or Colin, or whatever his name is, like Evan, you're, you're tied, you're bound. But like Rahab, she made a choice. And even though we said that she... She did this by faith. She believed the spy. She believed what she heard about God. It took something more than just intellectually believing that she was going to be saved. What did she have to do in verse 21? She had to tie the rope in the window. If she had just sat there and believed that she would be saved, even though she'd gotten all the knowledge about God, would she have been saved or would she have been destroyed? She would have been destroyed. So she had to intentionally come to the place where she tied herself to a new identity. She was going to get out of this alive the same way that the spies got out of it alive. She had to trust the power of red. The power of that rope. The spies trusted the strength of that rope to get out of the window. She was trusting the strength of that rope to be the signal to the approaching destruction to pass over her and get her out of this. You guys can take all that off and leave that right there and you guys can head down. My question to you is this. Which end of the rope are you tied to? Which end of the rope are you going to allow to determine your identity? 
Are you living tied to sin and shame, or are you living consciously, repeatedly, daily, tying yourself to the offer of redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ who loves us and has freed us from our sins? Here's the last thing we're going to learn from Rahab. We're going to learn how to go onward in hope for our future. Aren't you curious what happened to her? Let's find out real quick. Now, the end of the chapter here, let me just summarize those last three verses. The spies got out alive, and they made it back over across the Jordan River, and they went back and told Joshua everything I just told you. Now, I want you to turn two pages to the right, go over to chapter 6, and let's find out what happened to Rahab when the armies of Israel got into Canaan. Look with me in verse 22. Chapter 6, verse 22. And to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who were with her, and, she, and all of her relatives, and they put them outside the camp of Israel. Verse 24. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron. And they put them into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Verse 25. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved. I told you this when we began the series, but the word Joshua... It's actually in the Hebrew pronounced Yeshua. It's exactly the same name that we use for Jesus in the Greek New Testament. Jesus saved her and gave her a new identity. And because she was tied to the color of blood, the judgment passed over and she made it out alive. The same is true for you. The only way you're getting out of this alive without being destroyed by the wrath and the fury of God because He hates sin is to tie yourself to the redemption offered through the blood of Jesus Christ. And do you know what is so amazing about this story? That when Rahab made it out alive, she stood back and watched as the place of her shame and the place of her sin was absolutely annihilated. It went up in smoke. The place of her sin and shame would be a place she would never return to. I'm not going back there. I've got a new identity, I've got a new hope, and I've got a new future. Do you remember at the end of Forrest Gump? Jenny dies. Very sad story. And after she dies, Forrest goes back to Jenny's house. And do you remember what he did to it? He destroyed it. He destroyed the place of her shame and her sin because in his mind she had a new identity. That wasn't the girl that he knew. Whatever sins had been committed against her, whatever sins had committed 
been committed by her. He had given her a new identity. And the same is true for you. In Christ, we have a new identity. He wants to destroy the place of your past sin and shame and give you a hope and a future. You know what? This is not the last time in the Bible we hear about Rahab. We read about Rahab in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, she's assigned a new identity. There's two doctrines that we are studying right now. One is called the doctrine of justification. We talk about it all the time around here. It means that Jesus forgives the sin committed by me and treats me as if I've never sinned because he treated Jesus as if he had committed all my sin. That's the doctrine of the justification of God. But there's another doctrine here. It's called the doctrine of expiation. And it teaches this. Jesus cleanses not only the sin committed by me, Jesus cleanses the sin committed against me. He gives me a new identity. I'm not tied to the past of my sin and shame. I'm tied to his blood and I'm tied to his future. I'm tied to Jesus. Rahab was tied to Jesus. If you don't believe that, let me prove it to you in the New Testament. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, she's identified by her faith. By faith. Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. We read about her again in James chapter 2 verse 25 where she's identified by her good works. Rahab the prostitute was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. It's not teaching that you're saved by works. What it's teaching is, is that the evidence of your faith is works. The evidence that she believed God was that she tied the rope. She did something. If there's no evidence that you believe, you need to check out whether or not you really believe. Rahab really believed. Not only is she identified by her faith and by her works, she's identified by her connection to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, it tells us the family tree and the legacy of Rahab. Here's the good news. Rahab the prostitute one day met a guy and they fell in love and they got married and they had a baby and the baby's name was Boaz and Boaz grew up and he fell in love with a girl named Ruth. And they had a baby named Obed. And Obed grew up and met a girl and fell in love. And they had a baby and the baby's name was Jesse. And Jesse met and fell in love and he had a baby named David. And David became the king of all of Israel. And David had a legacy that ended up in a baby that was born in Bethlehem named Jesus. Do you understand what this is saying? Rahab was the great, 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 not sure how many greats, but great-grandmother of Jesus. Listen, because Jesus saved Rahab, Rahab later resulted in the baby named Jesus. I can't explain that. But what we know is this. 
Rahab's legacy was not her prostitution. Rahab's legacy was her new identity as she was tied to Jesus. In conclusion, it's not about Rahab, it's about you. It's about me. My question is this. What will define your identity? You got three options. Are you going to allow what has happened to you to define your identity? What has been done by you to define your identity? All that sin, all that shame, all that regret, is that what's going to define you or going to be tied to that? Or here's a better option. Will you allow your identity to be defined by what has been done for you? Jesus Christ went to that cross for you. He shed His blood for you. His body was broken for you. What are you going to do in response to that? Are you just going to live your life in sin and shame? Or will you tie your life and your identity to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Please don't get distracted. I'm going to have you out of here in about five minutes, but this is so important. Some of you have never understood that there was any way to be untied from your past, which is filled with shame and sin. Some of you have tried to redefine sin to deal with the mountain of shame. Doesn't work, does it? God doesn't want you to redefine your sin. God wants you to repent of your sin, to own it. Stop blaming and justifying and pointing your finger at what's been done against you. And take responsibility for the sin that's been committed by you. If you've never done that before, it starts with a simple act of faith. It's almost, in a sense, what Rahab did when she tied the rope in the window and believed with all of her heart that her rescue was going to be the result of being passed over when the color of blood was seen. Is that what you're trusting in? Are you trusting in your mother, trusting in a church, trusting in religion to try to save you, trusting in good works or morality? Listen, it's not enough. It's only the blood of Jesus that can cleanse do you understand he died on that cross in your place as a substitute for your sin? And if right now you will repent and believe and tie yourself to that truth, you'll be saved. If you've never done that, I'd love to lead you in a prayer where you can just tell the Lord, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready to move onward past the place of sin and shame. I'm ready to receive a new identity in Christ. Why don't you just open up your heart and say, Lord, I'm tired of blaming others. I'm tired of excusing my sin. I'm tired of redefining it or minimizing it. And today, I want to tie myself by faith to that cross. Forgive my sin. Cleanse my sin. 
Give me a new identity in Christ. If you've prayed that prayer, that means you do have a new identity and it's not something you want to keep secret. You want the world to know. I'm sure that Rahab loved to tell the story about how she was rescued as she tied that rope in the window. So this is the way we're going to end the service. In just a minute, I'm going to pray. As soon as I say amen, we're going to stand. Mike is going to lead us in a song. But while others are singing, I want to invite those of you that would like to declare your faith in Jesus Christ to slip out of your seat, come down an aisle. We've got some friends and pastors and elders down here that would love to, to pray with you and just to acknowledge that this is a new day for you. We've got a new believer's kit. We'd love to give that to you on the way out and just help you to get started in what it means to have a new identity in Christ. And I know that you're thinking of a thousand excuses why I shouldn't do that and there's people in the way and I'll be embarrassed and they'll make fun of me. Listen, everybody in here that's been rescued by grace has had that experience. We love you. We sympathize with you. We know how hard that is. But we also know it takes courage to live for Christ. And so I want to invite you to come. I'm going to pray. We'll say amen. We're going to stand and sing. That's your prompt to get out of your seat, come down an aisle, speak to a pastor. We'll spend a few minutes with you just praying for you and giving you some things to move forward. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for the rescue that's offered for all those who by faith will tie the rope to the cross. That's our only hope. So God, give my friends courage, those that are making commitments to you right now and trusting you, maybe for the very first time. I pray for others here today that they're Christians, they, they know what it means to be saved, and yet they're plagued by the past of sin and regret and shame. And I pray that you'd give them a refreshed faith as they leave here today to trust you in every moment for every sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.